Good morning. Our scripture reading is in Colossians chapter 1, um, starting at verse 24 and going through 2, chapter 2, verse 3. This is on page 983 if you are using the blue Bible found in the pews. Colossians 1, verse 24 is on page 983 of the Blue Pew Bible. Please join me as we read the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray for us once more? Father, we thank you for your word as it was just now read. And as we seek to understand, as we seek to obey, we pray for your Spirit's power. We pray for your Spirit's enabling. Oh Lord, speak to us now by your Spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us over the past month, you know that we, as a congregation, have been going through the book of Colossians. Today, we are finally finishing up just chapter one, venturing a little bit into chapter two. And this morning's passage is going to focus on the topic of ministry, Paul's apostolic ministry in particular, but the gospel ministry of every believer in general. Now, when we talk about gospel ministry this morning, I want to make sure right off the bat that we are all on the same page, that we are talking about the same thing. Because when I say the word gospel ministry, I want you to understand I'm not just referring to vocational Christian ministry, like the work of a pastor or a missionary or or a campus worker. It definitely could include those roles. But the way that we're going to be using the term gospel ministry this morning is much more expansive. Scripture teaches that really every single Christian, everyone who has been transformed by the gospel, is equipped for gospel ministry, not just pastors, not just missionaries. We're talking about every single believer, every Christian. 
Now, your ministry might be connected to one of the more formal roles of a church, maybe a small group leader, uh, a Sunday school teacher, a youth or children worker, a servant team leader, uh, maybe an elder, a deacon, a ministry coordinator. Gospel ministry, of course, includes all of that, but friends, it's much more than just those formal roles. In fact, gospel ministry typically happens in informal settings outside the walls of a church. It looks like sharing the gospel with a non-believing co-worker or classmate, discipling a new or, or younger believer, reading the, the Bible together or, or a good Christian book with someone, or just conversing over spiritual matters, trying to bring encouragement, or maybe even trying to bring correction to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. You know, gospel ministry could just be prayer. It could be praying for others, praying with others, and, and privately on your own, praying for others, just going, going systematically through a list of, of, of names, like our members' prayer guide. Just praying for people is ministry. Basically, gospel ministry includes any activity that aims at helping people grow up into spiritual maturity, to know Jesus more and to look and act like Jesus more. So, all of you who are Christians in this room, all of you should see yourselves as gospel ministers, just like the Apostle Paul saw himself. Look at our passage. Look at verse 24. In the verse prior to that, he just says that he has become a minister, a minister of the gospel of reconciliation. He says that again in verse 25. He has become a minister. Now, of course, Paul's particular ministry is that of an apostle, an apostle of Christ. And that is very unique, uh, a, a, a very unique ministry. An apostleship is a very specific stewardship within the economy of God. God gave uh, to certain men in the first century uh, this role because they were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ and they were personally commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the gospel as his ministers. So the gospel ministry of an apostle is definitely unique. We're not expected to imitate all that Paul carried out in his ministry. But as we study this passage this morning, as we consider the characteristics of Paul's ministry, I think we're going to learn a lot about the nature of gospel ministry that we can apply at any time and in any context for any Christian who has been equally called to be a minister. And the one primary characteristic that's going to stand out today in our passage is the toil and struggle that accompanies ministry. That's what we're going to see, that ministry is hard. Ministering the gospel to others is a toilsome struggle. Sure, yes, there is a lot of joy and satisfaction to be had when you're pouring yourself out for Jesus, when you're investing in other people, trying to do some spiritual good in their lives. But with that joy, with that satisfaction, definitely comes toil and struggle. 
You have to understand that the word for minister that Paul uses there in verse 23 or in verse 25, that's the word diakonos. It's where we get the, the, the word deacon in English. It, it can also be translated, as it often is in Paul's other letters, as the English word servant. So when Paul says he has become a minister for the gospel, he simply means he's become a servant, a servant for the gospel. Now, when we're dealing with servants, when you're dealing with servitude, well, then the idea of toil and struggle seems totally appropriate. It's a natural association. You talk about servitude, you talk about toil. Servitude is toilsome. Servitude is a struggle. We all get that. Well, friends, the point is, is that gospel ministry is no different. The same characteristics that we attribute to servitude should be applied to ministry. Well, if that's the case, then I'm not surprised if you're probably thinking, well, then why would anyone want to be a minister? Well, what's the appeal of gospel ministry if it's going to include toil and struggle that's no different than servitude? Well, that's a good question that I believe our passage actually answers. So notice how, how Paul starts off this section in verse 24. He, notice how he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's starting this whole section off talking about how he's rejoicing. So apparently the toil and struggle of ministry can coexist with joy, with rejoicing. How is that so? How is that possible? Well, let's talk about that this morning. What's going to help us is to see exactly what kind of toil and struggle accompanies gospel ministry. What exactly are we toiling after? I think that's going to help us understand this connection of toil and struggle and joy within ministry. So our first three points, if you want to follow along, look in your, uh, your, your bulletin, there's an outline. The first three points are going to try to flesh out what exactly does our toil and struggle involve. And then our last point is going to address how we go about this toil and struggle of ministry so that it's more of a joy than a burden. So follow along with me. Let's go into our first point. Gospel ministry involves toil and struggle to suffer the afflictions of of Christ. If you want to get into ministry, and I don't mean vocational ministry, I'm just talking about if you want to live out faithfully your calling as a Christian to minister to others, well then it's going to involve toil and struggle to suffer the afflictions of Christ. Now I know that statement needs further explanation, but I hope you see it just reflects Paul's thinking in verse 24. So let me read verse 24 again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So what's Paul referring to here? Well, he's referring to his sufferings on behalf of all the churches that he's either trying to plant or that he's trying to build up. So we, we know from chapter 4, verse 3, that he suffered for his ministry in planting and building up churches. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 3, he's saying he's writing this very letter from prison. 
Paul's been in prison so many times for preaching the gospel that commentators aren't even sure which imprisonment this is. They're not sure if this is when he was imprisoned in Ephesus or maybe it was when he was in Rome. We're not even sure. It's been so many times. If you just read through the book of Acts, you're going to be surprised as to how many times he was he was uh, um, persecuted. He suffered countless beatings and imprisonments. Five times he was flogged. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. He was constantly in danger. He was constantly in toil and hardship. But for Paul, his toils and struggles in ministry were reasons for him to rejoice, as he puts it in verse 24. Why is that? Well, it's because these sufferings, as he explains, were experienced in service for the, for the gospel, for the good and the growth of the church. That's why he's rejoicing, because he knows what it's for. You see, suffering for, for suffering's sake is masochism. Toiling for the sake of toiling is pointless. But suffering and toiling for the sake of the church is ministry. Because through it, the church grows up into godliness. The second century theologian Tertullian of Carthage once said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. He meant by that that every time enemies of the gospel try to suppress the gospel's influence by oppressing the church, the persecution itself tends to serve the very growth of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I, I agree with that statement, except for I I. I would want to tweak it just a little bit. I would want to emphasize that the seed of the church is really still the gospel. The growth of the church comes from the gospel, not from the suffering. But the suffering is like the fertilizer. The blood of martyrs fertilizes the soil and helps the church through gospel ministry to grow stronger, to grow up into maturity. So church, just take this to heart. If we hope to see fruitfulness in our ministry, in our efforts to minister the gospel to other people in our lives, then don't be surprised at the toil and struggle that accompanies our ministry. Now, I know perhaps in our context, the suffering won't be physical. There may not be actual bloodshed for us. But in our culture, in our society today, there will definitely be opposition, perhaps in the form of, of social pressure, of insults, verbal abuse, rejection, the loss of academic or career advancement, or even worse, the loss of relationships, all because you've hitched your wagon to Jesus and his gospel. Sure, you may, you may not shed any blood, but you're probably going to shed some tears. It's like our culture has developed an allergic reaction to biblical truth. If you go out there 
And if you claim that salvation is found in Christ alone, if you believe that judgment for sin is real and universal, and that we are all condemned to hell if, if not for the righteousness and blood of Jesus that covers those who repent and believe, even the, even the faintest hint of that kind of belief is enough to trigger a strong allergic reaction in our culture. That's how sensitive our culture has become to biblical truth. But the point here is that, friends, that's always been the case. That's always been true of gospel ministry. And Paul, he recognizes that, and he accepts that reality. And beyond just mere acceptance, he rejoices in that reality. Why? We'll just keep reading in verse 24, because he says, in verse 24, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, I know that's a confusing sentence right there. I know at first glance, it seems to suggest that something was lacking or inadequate in the atonement of Christ. It, it sounds as if Paul saw his suffering as filling up what was lacking in the cross of Christ. But, of course, that makes no sense when you can take into consideration the entire context of the letter, because we've already seen in the past uh, um, uh, messages that the presenting problem in Colossians was a false teaching that was going around suggesting that Christ and his cross was lacking and that it wasn't enough. So that was actually what Paul was up against. Clearly, he's not teaching that. He's opposing that in this letter. So to understand, well, we have to read this in context. And read in context, whatever he meant by filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, at least we know it doesn't mean that there's something deficient in the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So then what does it mean? Well, to understand what Paul means here, I think it helps to recall Paul's own conversion experience and how his conversion to Christ utterly transformed his outlook on things. In the book of Acts, in chapter 9, specifically in verse 3, we're told that on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecute Christians who were living there, Paul, also known as Saul, was radically converted. He met the risen Christ who said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul could have retorted, what are you talking about, Jesus? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting Christians. I'm persecuting the church. And Jesus would have said, exactly. Why are you persecuting me? And from that encounter, right then, right there, Paul came away convinced of the deep and intimate union between Jesus and his church. Jesus identifies with us in such a way that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. So the afflictions that Christians like Paul experience for the sake of the church can be rightly described as the afflictions of Christ. It's all because of that close identification, that union between Christ 
and his church. So what this means is that Paul here in verse 24 wasn't talking about the afflictions of Christ in his physical body, but rather the afflictions of Christ through his spiritual body, the church. Okay, so if that's the case, if he's referring to the church's afflictions, how are the church's afflictions lacking? What exactly is lacking in Christ's afflictions in this sense? Well, as we've already stressed, there was nothing lacking in the efficacy of Christ's atonement. Paul's afflictions added nothing to the finished work of Christ, to his work of reconciliation. But what was lacking, what was incomplete, was the toil and suffering that was going to be necessary to bring that message of reconciliation to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. You see, Christ's afflictions, through his passion, through his crucifixion, Christ's afflictions led to reconciliation with God. Paul's afflictions as an apostle of Christ led to that message of reconciliation being proclaimed to everyone, including the Gentiles, which, of course, didn't happen during the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's what was lacking. And that's why Paul is now rejoicing in his suffering for the church for that purpose of bringing the message to the Gentiles. He saw his afflictions in the flesh as a means of filling up or completing the task of reconciliation that Christ had begun with his afflictions in the flesh. So the whole point is this. The the point is that gospel ministry is going to involve toil and struggle. Because if you hope to bring the gospel to your neighbor, whether across the street or across the globe, you will inevitably suffer the afflictions of Christ. And the real toil, the real struggle is to experience all of that with joy. Now for Paul, as we've seen, what, what his joy was found in His joy came from knowing that the seed of the gospel is most fruitful in the soil of suffering. So, brothers and sisters, you can rejoice in knowing that your toils, your struggles for gospel ministry are the appointed means by which the Lord intends to grow his church, to build it up into maturity. So let's go back. Let's go back to our question here. What does gospel ministry involve? We've already seen it involves suffering the afflictions of Christ. The second answer is this from our text. Gospel ministry involves toil and struggle to make the word of God fully known. Toil and struggle to make the word of God fully known. We see this in verse 25. Paul ends verse 24 mentioning the church, and then he goes on to say, of which 
the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul sees himself as a minister of the church, a servant of the church, and he's been given a stewardship from God. And one of the primary responsibilities of this stewardship is to make the word of God fully known. Why is he stressing that? He's stressing that point because the false teacher in Colossians was going around saying that Paul and Epaphras before him didn't proclaim to you the full truth. The false teacher was going around saying, sure, yeah, they told you about Christ. They told you about being united with Christ by faith. Yeah, that's a good start. But you also need to follow this particular system of spirituality. You, You need to do this. You need to do that to complete that partial gospel that you had received earlier. And so, because that's what was being taught and 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 spread around the church. That's why Paul makes a point of saying that his stewardship, his responsibility was to make the word of God fully known. That means the gospel that you heard from Paul, the gospel you heard from Epaphras is full. It's not missing anything, nor is anything being held back. So what is the gospel that Paul preaches? The one that false teachers were calling partial, that they were saying was incomplete. Well, just keep reading in verse 26. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when Paul describes the gospel that he preaches as a mystery, I, I know that can be easily misunderstood if we don't define that term biblically. It, it might not be the kind of mystery that you have in mind, because when we use that word uh, mystery, we tend to think of things like mystery novels, you know, where, where, where there's some kind of hidden puzzle that a reader has to solve, and if you can just apply enough, uh, enough intellect and wit and intuition, you can figure out the mystery. Well, the way that mystery is used in the New Testament is, is similar in that it's about something hidden, but the key difference is that it is a hidden truth that you would never piece together. You would never figure out on your own. It's so surprising, so counterintuitive that you would never get it unless the mystery was divinely and graciously revealed to you. You know, in Paul's day, there were plenty of mystery religions, these cults that claimed to have a very esoteric knowledge available to only a select few, to an uh, elite group of intellectuals who were privy to this, to this secret of salvation. That's what was typically understood by the term mystery. But, but that's not how Paul viewed the gospel. Yes, it was hidden knowledge. It was a mystery, as he says, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This mystery, friends, this gospel is like an open secret that is to be shared and proclaimed to anyone who is willing to hear it. And, and what is this and, and what is this mystery revealed? What exactly is this open secret? Paul goes on to say it's simply 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, remember, friends, when, when Paul says Christ in you, that plural you there is referring most directly to the Colossian church, which is comprised mostly of Gentile believers. The mystery is about how Gentiles are now being included within the people of God. You see, the plan of God, the plan of God from the very beginning was always to choose one people group, the people of Israel, and to reveal God's glory to them, to let His glory dwell among them. But the plan of God was always for the people of Israel to function as a light for the nations. They were to shine God's glory. They were to extend God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth, to the Gentiles. So when Christ Jesus came, when He arrived on the scene, He fulfilled that very plan. He revealed the mystery of how Gentiles can share in God's glory along with Israel without having to become Israelites themselves. It's because, it's all because the glory of God now no longer resides in one temple, in one city, in one nation, in one culture, in one time period, now the glory of God resides in one person, the person of Christ Jesus. And all who trust in him, all who hide themselves in Christ, will experience God, not just God among you, but God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of this mystery lies not in its exclusiveness, but its inclusiveness. It's for all nations. It's for all peoples, all tribes and tongues. And also the, the glory of this mystery lies not in its complexity, but its simplicity. It's not about a complex system of spirituality. It's about Christ in you and you in Christ. In contrast to the false teacher, Paul says that his own message, that his gospel is fuller because it's simpler. He has made the word of God fully known, and that fuller message can be summed up simply as Christ in you. The gospel is about you being united to Christ by faith. So just think about, think about what that would mean for us. You know, I, I know many of us feel inadequate and, and intimidated when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. We feel like, you know, we just don't know enough to, to really get involved in gospel ministry, or we haven't studied the Bible enough, you know, we're not articulate enough. But let me just ask you, do you know Christ? Do, do you know that Christ is in you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection that you receive by faith? Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you're ready for gospel ministry. You're, you're fully prepared to share that gospel and to have the confidence that you are making the Word of God fully known. You're, you're sharing all that is necessary. You're not lacking anything. George Whitfield once said, 
Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Friends, that's a good word. Don't worry if someone can share the gospel better than you. No one can share a better gospel if you're sharing the gospel of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's keep looking at our text and asking, what does gospel ministry involve? Here's a third answer. Gospel ministry involves toil and struggle to present the people of God fully mature. Paul makes this very plain for us in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what this means, friends, is that gospel ministry doesn't just involve evangelizing and seeing people saved. Gospel ministry also involves discipling and seeing believers grow up into maturity in Christ. That's the goal of Paul's gospel proclamation. It's about preaching Christ and then presenting believers mature in Christ. And it's not going to be easy. I think anyone who has tried to minister to others, anyone who has tried to do some gospel good in someone else's life can testify that helping people mature in Christ is definitely a toil and struggle because sin and error will try to stymie your efforts and hamper your ministry and lies of the flesh, lies of the enemy will work to hinder a believer's ministry. If we want to present people mature in Christ, friends, it's going to take a balance, as we see here, of warning and teaching, a balance of correction and instruction. Do you see how Paul says he proclaimed Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom? Teaching and instructing as those of you who have been involved in that kind of ministry, you already know that's already a struggle, but you know it's even more toilsome to warn, to warn others, especially if you're the kind of person who shies away from giving correction to other people. We want to do gospel good in the lives of others, but some of us are ineffective, not because our gospel is incomplete, but because we're not comfortable when it comes to rebuking error or warning of false teaching, because we don't like confrontation. We don't want to come across as judgmental, but gospel ministry, as we see here, is going to involve warning people warning them of the dangers of sin and unrepentance, warning them of the dangers of error and false teaching. Of course, we shouldn't warn from a posture of moral or, or theological superiority. Our motives have to be pure, but you just ask, ask the parent of a child running around with scissors in his, in his hand, or ask the doctor of a patient with high blood pressure and you will know that a clear and firm warning can come out of a place of genuine care and concern for someone else's well-being. But there has to be that balance in our ministry of warning and instruction, also a balance of warning and encouragement. And we see Paul stressing encouragement 
in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and, all, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now notice with me, keep your eyes on that passage, and notice how Paul is mentioning all his toil and struggle on their behalf, not to win their approval, not to guilt trip them into loyalty, but to encourage their hearts What he wants for the Christians at Colossae and those at Laodicea and for believers he's never even met before is he wants them to mature in Christ to the point that they reach full assurance of understanding into the mystery of God, the gospel. And the most encouraging thing that he can say to them right now is to remind them that that mystery of God, the gospel, is simply Christ. Look at verse 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is such a comfort to know and to be told that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are just in Christ. There are no essential truths outside of Christ. Do you realize what a comfort it is to be told that Christ is enough? It means you don't have to search anywhere else for wisdom and knowledge about God. If if you're like me, you you probably have way too many books on your to-read list, and you probably have way too many um, uh, uh, articles bookmarked on your browser, and you probably have way too many podcasts that you have yet to listen to. Well, don't be overwhelmed with all the information out there that you have yet to get to. Turn instead to one of the four Gospels and look to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And friends, this just makes gospel ministry that much simpler. Yes, it may be toilsome, but ministry doesn't have to be complex. So I think one of the best ways, if you are interested in doing spiritual good for someone, is you invite them to read a gospel with you. Read one of the four Gospels together. If you have a friend who is seeking the faith or someone who's coming back to the faith or, or someone who's just a newer Christian, invite them to read the Gospel of Mark with you. On one hand, it's the shortest of the four, so that's a, that's a plus. But more importantly, Mark, the Gospel of Mark is all about showing you how Jesus is the Christ how he's the son of God. That's the big theme of Mark. And so I would also even recommend using a good resource to help you read Mark with someone. We have a resource that many of you in the church have used. It's called Christianity Explained, and it's a resource that helps you, teaches you how you can then help someone else read the book of Mark and at the same time, explain to them the gospel of grace. And so if you're interested in in doing that with someone and you want that resource and you want access to it, let me know 
let some of, uh, let your small group leaders know that they should know about that as well. Christianity Explained. So we've seen what's involved in gospel ministry. We've seen that it's a toil and struggle to, one, suffer the afflictions of Christ with joy, two, to make the Word of God fully known, and three, to present the people of God fully mature. Our last point is this. Our last point is about how we go about ministering to others so that it's more of a joy than a burden. And so since gospel ministry involves toil and struggle, here it is, then toil and struggle with God's energy working in you. Look back at verse 29. Verse 29, when Paul says, for this, that this is referring to his ministry to present everyone mature in Christ. So ministry is a toil and struggle, but Paul toils and struggles with all of God's energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the open secret, my friends. When it comes to gospel ministry, Paul is a hard worker. He toils, he struggles, but it's all on the basis of God's working, which he powerfully works within Paul. The reason that why Paul could suffer so much affliction and endure so much toil and struggle is because of grace, because of the grace of God working in him. He, he was, as, as we all know, one of the apostles of Christ. But unlike the rest of them, he was untimely born, as Paul likes to put it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul saw himself as the runt of the litter. And it's because he's the only apostle who was once an enemy and persecutor of the church. And so listen to what he says next in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That is a man who understands grace and how to apply grace to his life. Because when it comes to gospel ministry, Grace is not given to excuse you from hard work, to excuse you from toil and struggle. No, grace is given to empower you to toil and struggle to do gospel good for others. I think when it comes to ministry, when it comes to serving the church, we have a tendency, let's just be honest, we have a tendency to give less effort than we would give to our schoolwork or our work for our career. And we expect ministry to be far less laborsome and far less toilsome. And it's probably because, unlike at work or at school, in ministry, we're serving within the context of grace. And it's because of that grace that we don't feel all that bad to show up to D group, to show up to small group, pretty unprepared in our lesson, in what we're going to lead, 
We don't give the same effort to prepping a, a Sunday school lesson as much as we would to a client presentation. That's because we're serving in the context of grace. We're serving a God of grace. We think grace excuses you from toiling and struggling in ministry, but it's quite the opposite. Grace is what empowers you. You toil, you struggle, you work hard to minister the gospel to others, yet not you, but the grace of God that is within you. It's the energy of God that he powerfully works within you. Father, we want this power. We want this energy. We want you to work through us that we might minister well to others, to do spiritual good, gospel good in their lives. Oh Lord, we know that we are insufficient for these things in ourselves, but by, by your grace, through your spirit, Lord, we know that we can glorify you, we can do good for others. Lord, we can serve as ministers, as servants of the gospel, ministers and servants of the church. Lord, work through us for your namesake. It's in that name we pray.